Hey, Latinos and clinical researchers. We are here today with Sylvia Bedorf Cassis. Uh, she is, she has an MPH with a CYT and we're actually really excited to have her here today. Uh, me and Monica and Chris were just talking about how amazing her background is. So there's a lot to cover. We definitely want to make sure that, you know, we get all of that out there. So Sylvia, if you don't mind, please kind of take the wheel and give us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, my name, as you know, is Sylvia and I've been in the clinical research field for about 21 years now. I started fresh out of college as a research assistant, um, came down to Boston from Canada and have been here ever since. And um, my most recent work now is in the multi-regional clinical trial center of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Harvard. And I've just been really lucky to have had the experience of sort of being on the ground, conducting, helping to conduct research studies as a research assistant, research coordinator, and then having moved through over many years to different roles to land where I am. So I have a background um, not only in research coordination, but also in IRB, uh, the IRB space. So doing the ethics reviews at Boston University Medical Center for a few years and then moved on to doing more investigator education. How can we help investigators write protocols and consent forms that are um, likely to get through the IRB? Um, and then moved on through a variety of different roles that landed me at this current role at the MRCT Center. And this has just been kind of a fever dream because I never knew where my career was going. And I listened to some of your podcasts in the past where folks have talked about just not necessarily knowing what their path was or, or not knowing where they were going. And I, for a while, didn't know where clinical research was going to take me um, and didn't know if it was right for me for a long time. And now finally feel like, oh, now I think about sort of bigger picture and, and what are some of the ways that we can support researchers and in, in doing research in nice health literate ways. So I'm excited to talk more about that. Awesome. And if you don't mind, uh, if you're complete currently with the MRCT, do you mind give us a little bit of background? Sure. So the MRCT Center is a research and policy center in Boston. It um, sort of straddles the worlds of Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard. So we have an office in Boston and an office in Cambridge. It's our 10-year anniversary. We've been around for about 10 years now. And we've historically worked on sort of the regulatory research environment and transparency and how to support researchers and global convergence in research. And increasingly, we've been focused on additional efforts to support the conduct of clinical research um, that go beyond the regulations or, or they kind of bolster the regulations in many ways. So we've been having initiatives around diversity, equity, and inclusion in research. We have a pediatric project going on right now. How do we engage pediatric and youth populations in research and ensure that trials include them? Um, we have worked in a variety of spaces and my current focus has been on health literacy. And that work was born out of work that we did um, before I even came to the center. I joined in 2018. In 2017, we had launched an entire uh, resource on return of aggregate research results and return of, you know, of individual research results. And it was that work that really kind of launched us into the health literacy space, because if you're going to return results to people, you need to do it in clear ways. You need to do it in ways that they could understand. And if we're talking about returning results, 
and health literacy, we probably should back up and talk about health literacy in terms of the study conduct and the consent and recruitment and all of those things and that come before. So when I came on board, I uh, took on leading a work group of about 50 people. We had co-chairs as well um, to help lead this initiative. And we looked at health literacy and clinical research. What are some of the ways that we can support researchers um, and sponsors and IRBs to think about health literacy in their part of that research life cycle and their role in research. And so that's been my predominant, um, my predominant focus over the last few years. And so I love to talk about health literacy. I can talk about that original resource and then a new one that we were able to pilot over the last year or so and uh, launched this past summer. So I am all, I'm always open for questions. So I, I love talking about it. Yes, I would love to hear more about that. I mean, obviously that's one part that is very important because uh, that's basically the way we communicate. I mean, we educate uh, the, the population out there. And if, uh, if the communication is not done, uh, in a way that is, uh, I mean, in words that everybody will understand. Then, even if we if we if we do all the material in the world, then uh, the communication is not going to be uh, meaningful. So, uh, I will definitely love to hear more about that program and 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 your uh, background in that. Sure. Um, well, I, as I said, love to talk about it. So. When we thought about health literacy in clinical research, we kind of broke it down in terms of the participant's journey through the clinical research trial, through the clinical research study. And you know, this is important because we want to start thinking more about, we should always have been, but we should want to think about the participant's perspective, right? What is it that they are experiencing in this journey? And so when we thought about health literacy, we thought, from the very beginning of discovering research as a concept, we should, as organizations, as much as possible, be um, championing research. We should be normalizing research participation. So the idea that um, you, know, you might have campaigns, outreach campaigns into the community, or if you're a hospital with those those screens that you have up in the waiting rooms, now that we're back to having patients come in person and waiting in waiting rooms, you know, uh, post, you know, sort of not post COVID, but you know, now we have more people in person. Can we have information about research just generally up in public places so that it becomes something that's less scary and less divisive and less, um, less like something that you're only approached with when you feel like somebody wants something from you. If somebody wants me to be a participant, now is the first time I'm hearing about research. That doesn't always feel so good or feel like you're get, having a, like a trusting relationship. Sometimes you can feel a little suspicious. So we've always thought like health literacy starts with letting people know about research and how important it is to clinical care. This is the way we find treatments that work. And the more people that participate that have different backgrounds, the more we're able to say, yes, this, this drug or this treatment, this therapy, whatever it is, could work for you because the studies had people like you in it. So that's where we started our health literacy kind of thinking and conversation. And then, of course, we thought about, well, 
recruitment, recruitment flyers, recruitment conversations? How do we talk about research in ways that are understandable and more um, engaging and more of a dialogue, right? Like let's, let's have this be a conversation. I'm not just talking at you. I wanna learn more uh, about you and how you would feel about being in a research study. And then that moves into consent and the on-study time. If you consent to the study and then are in the study, how can we support through a variety of different resources or, or methods? How can we support people staying in the study so that they don't leave for reasons that are preventable? And that is again about dialogue and conversation. And then there's the end of study process. And so thinking about how you communicate, helping people get off the study in safe ways, um, whether they were on a, if they were getting a treatment that or not, like, can they continue it? Will they have access to that? Thinking about post-treatment, post-trial responsibilities. Um, and then of course, results. Will you share results with participants? Participants want to know. So, you know, if they do, you know, if you're an investigator and you're thinking about your study, think about how you're also going to share results later with your patient participant population, because that's, something they want. So we really thought about the whole life cycle and how to integrate clear communication into that. Amazing. Uh, yeah, yes. And um, Sylvia, how do the company integrate this in the, the this literacy in uh, different languages? Oh, it's such a good question. And this is something where, you know, a partnership with groups like you, like Latinos in clinical research would help us so much because we know that translation can create challenges again. So you could create an English plain language document that, you know, may, is the right grade level is low enough, or you've tested it with um, others, with a population. Cause that's another thing I'll just quickly note as much as we can, we should be testing, user testing the materials we create, right? So that we know that they are understandable, that people can take the steps that we want them to take based on those pieces of information, whatever it is. But yes, when it comes to translation, then we found that we sometimes run into difficulty where it's plain language, it gets translated and the, the reading level goes, the grade level goes up again because um, and not for any, not for any malicious reason, not for anyone trying to do harm. It's just that if we're not familiar with why things were said very simply to begin with, we might translate into a more technical way. Um, and so we've just been thinking a lot about how can we help support um, better, just not better is not the right word, just a tailored interpretation that really uh, continues to hold to those plain language principles, continues to support like clear, simple communication. And so I don't have a perfect answer for how to do that, but um, to practice what I preach, you know, engaging with individuals who speak uh, predominantly another language and have English perhaps as a second language to help with that contextual kind of work is something that we ourselves have to do as a center to ensure that the resources we eventually create for others can be uh, supported. And we do have some resources coming out around just the issues around limited English proficiency and what that means even for inclusion in trials and the uh, strict um, inclusion criteria that some studies have around having to be English speaking, which frankly is you know, not okay in the United States. We should be having more inclusive trials that uh, 
especially at least include Spanish speakers so that we can have a more diverse population being re recruited and enrolled in studies. Most definitely, um, I could agree. I couldn't agree anymore, actually. And I and I do understand for sure that 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 is a barrier in itself, right? Just coming up with basic, uh, you know, terminology, right? Just to to go through the subject is is already difficult enough, right? Especially when it comes to meeting the criteria, the sponsor, and all that good stuff. But you know, language is definitely like the next level, and like we've talked about. Um, in other in other uh, webinars and, and also like interviews, right? It, it's uh, it also comes down to well, how can how can we you know like uh, your company with LICR, right? To work together to find a way to cohesively work together and maybe even connect, collaborate with other companies as well, uh, other translation companies. One of our ambassadors actually she is she works for one of the major global uh, translation companies um, and you know, kind of finding these ways to collaborate together and see if we can, you know, make things work a bit better, or create some sort of processes that can really just change the way we address or the way that we, you know, uh, move forward with creating translated documents, right? Um, I really like how, you know, you're saying your company is thinking outside of the box and really trying to go out of their way to really make things accessible, resources and all that good stuff, because it's ultimately that's what it is. I think um, when you have populations, whether it's, you know, Latinos or, you know, African-Americans, whichever, it's just, it's still resources, knowledge, understanding, education. I mean, we, as clinical research professionals, we're still constantly learning, right? And so um, I definitely think that there is, there'd be a really great way for us to collaborate in that and maybe see if we can figure something out and, or maybe connect with other companies as well to see if there's some sort of way we can streamline this a little bit better. I would love that because I think the one thing that was um, I guess my almost my purpose for coming today was this glossary we we created and piloted a clinical research glossary just this past year and so that process involved uh, 27 uh, people on a task force with me. They were from a variety of backgrounds in industry, academia, and um, one third of them were patients and patient advocates. We really tried to have a nice representation of, of patients and patient advocates to create um, just a proof of concept glossary of 53 terms. So not expansive yet. It's just a small number of clinical research terms that have a plain language definition that we worked to, by, to build consensus on with 27 people. We all came together to try to get everyone's input and create a definition. It has the English pronunciation, so you can hear it. So for some accessibility, like it's an auditory um, uh, way of, of hearing what the word sounds like. There's an image, so some sort of an image or graphic that's associated with that definition. So people have that visual connection as well. And then we had use in a sentence, um, additional info if people wanted to dig in more, um, uh, words that are like it, so synonyms and opposite words, and then additional resources outside of our, um, our group, the MRCT Center. So maybe we would point, if we're informed consent, we'd have our plain language definition, and then maybe we'd also point to the FDA's resource on um, informed consent for clinical trials so that anyone who was really interested and could keep digging, but if you wanted to stay high level and just have the plain language definition, you could. And so we're exploring now after having launched it in June, 
how we could expand and looking for partnerships like around translation and the nuances with translation because you know the the Spanish and you know, Mexican Spanish might be different than um, you know Puerto Rican Spanish and you know so folks in in the Bronx are maybe speaking a little differently than folks in Southern California and so we're trying to figure that out how can we also create a, a kind of a nimble nuanced glossary that supports uh, Spanish speakers in the U.S. and as a center that also thinks about global trials you know how do we take it global that the translation can be more applicable widely. I mean, it's a big question, but in the meantime, we do have this small glossary with a few plain language terms, 53 terms, and um, it's a place to start. It's a place to, if you have an electronic consent form, you could maybe hyperlink to some of those definitions, or if you're trying to do some education with a potential participant, you could, use some of the, the sites, the pages from the glossary to show them some of the, the information in ways that they can access. And I'll just say, since October is Health Literacy Month, yay, we um, <laughs> ended up having a um, opportunity to do um, the glossary advertising on our screens at Brigham and Women's Hospital so that patients who are coming in, there's uh, the URL, but also a QR code, so they can just familiarize themselves with the glossary. Cause that's what I was saying when we started this idea that, oh, I'm coming to the hospital or I'm coming to see my doctor and look, there's research information. Like research is a normal thing that happens here. I could check this out and just starting to lay that foundation so that people aren't surprised when they hear about research, um, but rather it's just a normal part of their experience in their um, care environment. Uh, well, major kudos to you and your team at MCRT. Um, I don't know about you, Monica and Chris, but I think that's the first time I've heard of something like that. Like, yeah. it's 53 terms, but that's that's pretty big for the type of, um, I guess, exposure you're giving, which is, like you said, the auditorial, the vision. That's really the, the vision, you know, uh, example. That's, that's thinking out of the box. That's really doing your best to try to accommodate for all ways of learning, which is good because, you know, Reading is just one way, hearing is another and seeing is a whole other. And then also you know, um, making that correlation. Cause even then, if say you have an output with one word in the language, even if you have a translator, right? The image can provide that connection to the real translation, right? So yeah. I think that that's amazing. That's, that's really great to hear. I mean, it's the baby steps, beginning steps but it's definitely the start of something pretty big. And I mean, I'd love LICR to, to do what we can to be a part of that, to assist in however we can. And uh, I'm sure Monica and Chris feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> and Dan and Judy, if they were here, especially Judy. Judy, she's a massive advocate. Uh, she's like a cheerleader as far as uh, it on our team when it comes to ICFs and translations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, thank you for sharing that with us. It's amazing. Sylvia, is that, I'm sorry to interrupt, is that, is that a glossary available to the public? It is. It's available. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. And so Where, it's an easy URL. I can just say it, I think. It's mrctcenter.org forward slash glossary. Um, Send that to us in an email. And since you okay. said it's, it's uh, literacy month, we will have our social media manager Chanel post that up on our page and share it. I mean, that's really great. I would love for 
everybody in our network to be able to see that. That'd be great. That's awesome. I'd be so happy to do that and to, to spread the word and find ways to, to partner. And as I said, like usability testing is something we really want to be able to do more. And so if we can partner also for fo with folks who are Spanish speaking, even to um, test the English version, right? Because sometimes the translations aren't available for people. And so they're navigating an environment um, where we want to make sure that at least the English is as understandable as it can be if you're not a native English speaker, right? And like, that's what we, we're trying our best to, to create ways to make research just more accessible. And again, like, like I said, more normalized, more like this is just a normal part of everyday life. That's right. Uh, Sylvia, how long, how long ago did you guys create this uh, uh, glossary? We just launched in June uh, earlier this year. So we did the pilot last year. We started in the summer and went through um, many iterations of definitions uh, using an agile process, which is just this like iterative process of um, adjusting and moving through the definitions. We had consensus conversations because most of these definitions we couldn't just decide on. I had used like a Google uh, spreadsheet for us to track changes and feedback and we couldn't finalize just through a spreadsheet. We needed an actual conversation where people's perspectives could really be shared and we could kind of massage the definitions a little bit together. Um, and then we, we moved forward with taking all of that content and developing the website which was its own process and grabbing the images and, and pulling all of those things together. So it took some time, but then in June we launched and now we've just been um, excited about the uptake. There's been quite a bit of traffic to the site and we, we wanna always bring more people to the site and get the word out. So I've been doing um, the sort of dissemination tour to try to get people <laughs> to, to know about it. Um, and we've just been, now thinking about well, what what are the next steps? How can we grow this? What you know what would companies need in order to adopt a glossary like this? You know how, how what approvals or processes might they have to follow in their own companies to kind of be able to use this as their standard? Because one of the things we really want to try to avoid, and I know that can be hard, but is that everybody's using like slightly different, but not quite the same, like terms and definitions, right? Like we'd love to harmonize at least a little or a little bit more, right? Because if I'm a potential participant and I'm considering studies from multiple different companies or hospitals, and they're all kind of saying things in kind of the same way, but kind of different, that doesn't really engender a lot of trust in me. I feel like it's going to make me feel like disempowered because I'm not really sure what I should be believing or focusing on. And we just really would love to create partnerships across the uh, research ecosystem to adopt this. Um, and, and not to say that again, that it has to be required, but really that everyone feels like this is something they could, could sort of plop into their workflow and it would, it would work for them, right? This glossary would work. It would work for industry. It would work for, um, academia, it would work for nonprofits or for uh, patient advocacy organizations that want to explain research, whatever it might be. So we're starting to, or more or less continuing to have those conversations to figure out 
what will this look like? Could this grow into something bigger, more sustainable and more expansive and more uh, integrated into the research ecosystem? Yeah, I, I have a, 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 I'm just curious, how did, did your team ended up picking this, this 53 words? How do we pick this? The, the, pick the 53 words? Yeah. Oh my yeah. Why this 53? <laughs> Such a great question. So we had a list of words that we looked through a variety of different research documents and research um, content to see what was commonly in, commonly in studies. And through CDISC, which is um, a standards, a data standards group, they had a list of, of research terms and they worked with another organization. So we had a little like partnership in terms of determining these words. They worked with an organization that had also kind of like prioritized the words. And so we, this is a long-winded and not very clear explanation, but it was through some consensus again, through a few organizational um, uh, individuals who kind of came up with the 53. And then as a, as a, center with my leadership, we were like, okay, we'll finalize these 53. And so they are basic clinical research terms like clinical trial and informed consent and randomization, but they're all, and, and then also um, moving into maybe more procedural type things that come up in studies a lot, like an MRI or a CT scan. Um, we have adverse event, um, you know, or things like that that are explained so that are also more procedural that are maybe kind of more specific to studies because we, we don't usually talk about drug adverse events. We talk about side effects when we're talking about like medicine that we take regularly. So how are these things in research just a little bit different, had phase in it, different phases um, and different uh, things like that. So it was kind of, we tried to kind of have a broad range of types of terms to just test out the process with. Um, and went from there, you know, then the list, we have many, many more to go. We have, I have another list of like another hundred. We could go up to, I think it's like hundreds and hundreds if we really wanted to. So it will, it could potentially keep growing. Sure. Well, I, what if, what if we had, you know, for instance, is there, is there a way for, you know, a Latinos and clinical research member who doesn't necessarily, you know, is unable to show up to any live, you know, uh, webinars, but does, you know, is an avid listener to the podcast and would like very much to find a way to involve themselves or participate, especially if they have like a bunch of research background and they find this very meaningful. Because we do have a good amount of members that love talking about this specifically. Um, and so is there a way that they could reach out or is there a way that they can give you know, input on your website or anything like that? Yeah. So the website itself is designed to have places to submit feedback. So we have like, like places there to like contact us and let us know feedback on specific things. So they're generally, yes. And then, you know, again, if people want to get in touch with me specifically, they could reach out to to you, um, Ashley or Monica and, and get in touch with me. I mean, I'm happy to engage with people and figure out ways, you know, even for, like, like I said, like user testing, get input, like how can we make sure that this is really a, a widely accessible resource for people? Like that, that's my dream. So I would want that to, I would definitely do anything to make that possible. Awesome. I, I think if you could even, um, 
you know, obviously this would be like longer down for the future, um, but you know, if you could even specify into specialties, right? The glossaries into specialties, I think that would definitely have a lot more uptake from, from the sponsors and CROs, right? That are implementing this. Um, because if, like you said, you wanna kind of make it to where it's all in, all encompassing, which yeah. I think is a very great idea. Uh, we were just talking about this on another call about, um, you know, uh, South America, South America regulations with different countries and how we need to like figure a way that there can be great communication and just like a, you know, smooth processes so that you can get things moving, get things rolling for PIs that are into research or for institutions that are wanting to involve more research, right? And so I think this is right there as well, right? It would be very, very, just, it'd be useful, extremely useful. And I mean, it, I feel like it's, we have all this innovation happening outside of sponsor and CRO, uh, more specifically sponsor. And so I really feel it's just, the sponsor just needs to kind of put their hand out and say, okay, we're open. We're open to receiving innovation, thought processes, different, different things that we could do to really enhance what we have so that ultimately it's a two-way street, right? It benefits the sponsor, it also benefits the subject. And overall, it helps everybody in, in the sense with work, work time, just making things more simplistic, making the patient feel comfortable, you know, the whole thing around. I mean, and so hopefully there's a sponsor listening to this right now. We can get you, you know, oh, not right now, but when the recording's out and we can get you contacted to somebody. But, you know, um, I really hope that they listen because it, more and more, I think it's just the sponsor is really the barrier to, to getting all these things moving and really, you know, being accepted on a very large scale because most of these are global, if not, you know, nationwide. So as long as they approve of it, it's a snap of the finger implementation happens mm -hmm. and they can really streamline this, right? Whether it's, you know, different languages, uh, your glossary. I mean, it, it's it's a, a long list of things that could really just re be great. So um, thank you so much for you and your team for creating this, for even having the thought to do this and going out of your way, taking a whole year. I mean, you know, for 53 words, the whole year, that says a lot about the kind of uh, thought process that was, <clears throat> excuse me, placed into this and uh, consideration into the different ways of learning. So I thank you guys so much. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sylvia, I, I mean, obviously it was recently launched kind of, but do you guys have seen any results or any, have you received any feedback uh, of this? So we've actually had some nice um, responses already. So, I mean, just within our own um, hospital system, if you're, if anyone's familiar with Boston, Mass General Brigham has an enormous, it's a huge employer and it has multiple hospitals under the system. And we have a whole um, research kind of uh, recruitment and education pipeline in that. And so they've approached us around uh, some expansion opportunities. And we're also have been approached um, by a couple of other groups that we're exploring with. I don't know if I'm allowed to say yet, <laughs> we're, but let me just say that there's sort of opportunities to have this really go bigger if we wanted to. And we're just kind of figuring that all out. So I've been like heartened by the response. And I'll also say, you know, my experience in at the MRCT Center 
has been interesting because our organization works with sponsors um, across the bio, like life sciences or uh, sort of ecosystem. So the people that I'm interacting with are like so supportive of these ideas and they're so, um, they're enthusiastic about making research, about doing right by the participant and making research a, a positive experience because it is, it's better for the participant and it's it's good for the company. Like it is right to, to do well in research, to enroll their participants, to have good press about their research experiences. I mean, these are good things. So my experience thus far is that they are very receptive. I think where it starts to get challenging, where you might be experiencing this on the, on the ground is like in the implementation. So how do we kind of like get it integrated into systems these machines are big. You've got the um, sort of the, the research development side, R&D side, then you have the commercial side. Like there's so much happening in these companies um, that sometimes, you know, just getting into the study teams and into the different writing groups or into the, whatever the pipelines might be, it's just, it requires, um, it requires a little bit of muscle. You've got to kind of like do it. So you know, I think there's multiple steps. There's sort of the cultural change, the culture change, which is like, we prioritize this. We think this is important and we want to do it. And then there's the uh, policy change. So what are the policies we have to put in place to do it? And then there's the procedural operational. So what are the steps on the ground that we're going to take that are going to make this um, a natural extension of the work we already do? So I don't have the answers for that, but I just, I'm, perpetually, um, I guess, an optimist, which I didn't really know about myself, but I guess I'm an optimist in thinking that, you know, we're taking baby steps along the way and it's, we're, we're in it together. I, I really want that to be, you know, the case. And we just go slowly but surely to make incremental change. It's, it's not overnight. It, it's not giant. It's small steps to show that you know, this, that we, we care, right. This is kind of about empathy and compassion, you know, making information understandable to people. Like that's about caring about somebody and making sure that they're taken care of. So I think that we're all moving in that direction slowly, but surely. Yep. Totally agree. <laughs> well, we are and the communication obviously yes. is, is the key factor here. <clears throat> Most definitely. It's like we had a, a Dr. Tapian not too long ago. It was actually Tuesday. He's from Mexico City. He originally did his clinical research uh, in the Netherlands. And he said that the difference was that in the, in the Netherlands, you know, they actually, uh, the participants don't get paid. There's no incentive. They just generally really love research and they like to be a part of the research. And that right there, I mean, that blew our minds when we heard that, you know, and it's because they understand the research. Mm -hmm. There's not really much language barrier because they understand both Dutch and English. And mm -hmm. so there's, you know, uh, understanding and there's the trust and all the things that kind of create that really good bubble to kind of help the study go, right? And so um, I thought that was interesting. And obviously here, if we can just give the resources, the education, and then also tackle the language issue, which Sounds like a little bit, but it's really a lot on a big scale. But I mean, you know, like you said, working together, uh, bringing people, organizations, companies together that have the same goal, you know, and 
I guess, you know, huddling together and com coming up with the game plan. So mm -hmm. we, LICR would more than love to connect with MCRT and, and get together and, you know, uh, see what we can do to help each other out and get this moving, right? <laughs> Make it improve and keep improving on it over time. That's right. I love that. I look forward to a big, long future together. <laughs> so I think, I don't know, uh, Chris or Monica, do you have any other questions? I know that Sylvia, you know, you have to cut it short today, but like I said, we really, you know, we want to have you back on. I feel that this is something we should even provide on a, a live webinar. I think that this is awesome. And I'm, I know for a fact that um, our members who attend monthly would really love to maybe even ask questions on this. Cause this is, this is, I think it's very innovative. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I that. agree. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I have uh, many questions, but I'm going to leave it for the next, <laughs> for the next time. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much, Sylvia. We really appreciate it. We look forward to speaking with you soon. Again, please uh, email us the information, the, the link so that we can provide it to our members and post it on social media, uh, get this rolling, get some more eyes on it. And um, we will be in touch to see how we can, you know, move forward and, you know, collaborating. I love that. Thank you so much for having me on and asking such wonderful questions and just giving me a chance to talk a little bit about this work. It's just such a pleasure and I'm really grateful for this opportunity. So thank you. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you so much. It was a great time. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.